You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Yahweh said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone, like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as Yahweh had commanded him, and passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels, such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of Yahweh, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim, for you shall worship no other god. For Yahweh, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, as I commanded you, at the time appointed in the month Abib. For in the month Abib you came out from Egypt. All that open the womb are mine, all your male livestock, the firstborn of cow and sheep, the firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. You shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruits of wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before Yahweh God, the God of Israel, for I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before Yahweh your God three times in the year. 
you shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of Yahweh your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And Yahweh said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with Yahweh forty days and forty nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that Yahweh had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before Yahweh to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with them. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado, once again for episode 585 of this podcast. Today is Tuesday, March 28th, 2023. And I just got back yesterday with my son, Solomon Emmanuel Mullet, from a whirlwind adventure exploring. Well, quite a lot, quite a lot of America's countryside. I'll tell you all about it in this episode. We saw some really beautiful scenery and quite a lot of three states, Colorado, Arizona, New Mexico, a little bit of Utah, just a, just a touch, just a smidgen, just as much as you could see from the Four Corners area, the Four Corners National Monument. That was pretty neat. But, you know, it's interesting. It's interesting 
to come back again after a long trip like that. Four days. We thought it was going to be three. We originally planned for three. That was ambitious, as it turned out. And 1,600 miles plus of driving. Four days, 1,600 miles, four national parks, one national monument, one state park, and then whatever Garden of Gods in Colorado Springs is classified as, that as well. Plus plenty that we just had to pass by. We had to keep on trucking. It was a turn and burn, as I explained to my son Solomon, as I've explained to his older two brothers when we've gone on our trips together, when they turned 13 before him. This was a sampler. This was, uh, we're going to see a lot, a little bit of a lot of things, and we will not squeeze every drop from any one of these sites. There's a lot more that you could do at the Grand Canyon, for instance, than what we did. But we got sunset pictures and we got sunrise pictures over the Grand Canyon. There's a lot more that we could have done at Mesa Verde National Park, but the museum was closed for the season. Actually, it's been closed for a few years now, according to the gal who rang us up at the gift shop in the visitor center. There's a lot more that we could have done had they opened up the museum before we got there, or if they would have been offering tours, we could have hiked down. But then the question is, would we have, even if they were offering those things when we came through, for the sake of time, we couldn't have seen all of those things and done all of those things at Mesa Verde, which are there to do if we were going to proceed on to the Grand Canyon, which we did. And so what did we see, right? What did we see when we didn't see everything? And what is the sentiment coming back from a long trip like that? Is the sentiment, ah, okay, now I know everything. No, actually, it's something almost opposite where you realize how much less you knew <laughs> all along now that you've seen this and you've seen, ah, that was just the edge of the experience. There's a lot you could do going down into some of those cliff dwellings at Mesa Verde. There's a lot you could do going down into the Grand Canyon that we just didn't have time for. On the drive back, we stopped and drove through Petrified Forest National Park. There's a lot more we could have done in Petrified Forest National Park, hiking trails and going into the museum, going into some of the history, some of the artifacts and various fossils that have been recovered there and are being studied. Great Sand Dunes National Park, we just barely, barely scratched the surface because we were on our way to Picosa Springs and weather was coming in and we could see that and it was getting late, even as it was, having left when we did, instead of going in and really exploring those dunes like we would want to in the future, I trust. Even such as it was, we encountered a blizzard coming up over the mountains before you get to Pagosa Springs. That was uh, a tad taxing for me <laughs> coming up the mountain and having nearly whiteout conditions with 
how much snow was falling and snow on the roads going up and then snow on the roads coming back down again. It was quite a trip. I've got to say it was quite a trip. And hopefully we didn't try to do too much, even as it was, see too many things, cover too many miles. Hopefully it wasn't too taxing, too exhausting just to cover that many miles in that short a number of days. But I'm glad that we went. I'm really glad that we went. Solomon and I had some great conversation, listened to most of my playlists on Spotify, plus occasionally would turn on something on YouTube because a question would come up in the course of conversation and we'd say, oh, I wonder how that works. I wonder what this is. Some of the places that we visited or drove by, it was like, okay, well, let's look up a quick video that will explain more about the history of that place that we don't have time to stop at right now, but we'll make a mental note that it's here. And what could we have learned? Perhaps can we get some of that as we continue on down the road? Now knowing that that is a feature of this landscape, that's part of the history of this land. Coming back after a long trip with so much information, so much scenery, so much conversation, so many miles. One appreciates all the more how nice it is to be home and to be not in a moving vehicle, for instance, and even just to enjoy the scenery that is right here. We have a view of the mountains and maybe we enjoy it all the more because those are, in some sense, our mountains. There are mountains all over the place, all over the world, In some sense, these are our mountains because they're close by. They're close at hand to appreciate without having to exhaust ourselves and buy a lot of fuel and a lot of (laughs) food on the road. And also, as well, just by nature of the trip, you know, being just my son and I, and I still have my other sons as they get older, as they hit 13, Lord willing, will each of them and I go on trips together. Just the two of us is a very different experience compared with when it's our entire family. And we realize that very quickly when we come back home again, after being gone for several days, everybody wants to talk all at once, talk over each other and tell about this and show me this and ask that. And it's everybody all at once And there's some traffic cop exercise (laughs) that I find myself having to engage in again already, just having gotten back yesterday about noon. We stopped in Pueblo night before last. We were expecting, hoping to get home Sunday night, but instead about 11 p.m. we decided, all right, that's enough. In Pueblo, we still have three hours and some change left. And what's the what's the point? What's the use? Why do that to ourselves? I didn't want to do that to Solomon. He was obviously ready to be out of the vehicle, not feeling so hot. And plus you've got deer and you've got elk and you've got various other creatures that might be in the middle of the road suddenly while you're traveling down the interstate, while you're not super fresh, having come from the Grand Canyon. That's a lot of miles to cover. in the night, finishing up your trip at the end of a long day of driving, it's just not a good recipe for safety or for comfort or or, or for health uh, generally. 
And so we pulled off in Pueblo, finished the trip yesterday morning, ended up stopping in Colorado Springs to check out Garden of the Gods, just drive through it. I parked at the Mesa Overlook above Garden of the Gods for a conference call. So all got out, took some pictures, and then we drove through the park. And I'll be honest, we killed a little bit of time before heading north again on account of a snowstorm hitting Denver and Greeley. And that was for the best. Apparently, it was quite a lot of snow coming down pretty hard and fast. There were some accidents on the road. Uh, We left in fog on Friday morning, thick, thick fog. And then we came back with a snowstorm. And it's interesting because three weeks ago, checking the forecast, this weekend, this past weekend that we went and toured these national parks and various other attractions, it was looking like it was going to be springtime weather. You know, not hot out for sure, but upper 50s, low 60s for the highs, and just about perfect, sunny and all that. And then within a few days of when we were going to leave, I checked again, and all of a sudden it was, oh, mid-30s for highs, and early mornings are going to be you know, low 20s, and a very different experience. There was snow that had fallen, actually quite a lot of snow that had fallen in Mesa Verde and at the Grand Canyon and through Arizona and New Mexico. We saw snow nearly everywhere, you know, at least a dusting nearly everywhere. And in some places, quite a lot more snow than we were uh, probably assuming those places ever get just because they are desert, right? You don't associate snow with the desert. But I would ask the cashiers or front desk clerks or whomever, whomever we were interacting with as we would make various stops along the way. I would ask them, so is this a lot more snow than you guys typically get? Or is this normal or you know, kind of what's the what's the feel here? And it seems like more snow than I would have expected there to be here. And without fail, every one of them said, yes, this is quite a lot more snow. This is significantly more snow than we usually get. It's crazy for us to get this amount as much as we've gotten this winter. And that coincides neatly, actually, with something I've talked about on this podcast in recent weeks with some reporting about weather patterns changing. We're going to shift. We've been in a La Nina pattern, and now we're going to be moving into an El Nino pattern. That's the expectation for the next few years, probably. And that's going to mean more moisture for this part of the country, which is very good because one of the hot button items that is being leveraged to argue for more climate change initiatives, more green New Deal initiatives around the world. I think it's of a piece with the Great Reset push for globalism and for DEI and ESG and all the rest. One of the big things that's being leveraged in this part of the country is that certain supplies of water that are used for agriculture and drinking and watering of lawns and generating electricity, those supplies of water have been greatly depleted because there hasn't been 
enough precipitation. There hasn't been enough rain when it's warm, snow when it's cold, snow melting and then running into the rivers to keep them well stocked. Well, that might be <laughs> that might be about the change actually. That might be changing right now as a matter of fact in this part of the country and the part of the country that you may read about pertaining to the Colorado River. And that's a good thing, I think. Now, is it going to change the script? Yes, probably, possibly. But odds are low that the people who have been pursuing a certain agenda politically and socially, odds are very low that they're going to give up on their agenda. They'll change their talking points. They'll change their script. But it'll be the same objective. It will be diversity, equity, inclusivity. And I think that's just very unfortunate. I, I really do. I know there's a lot of people who are probably tired of hearing about wokeness and CRT. And there's a lot of folks who are just not very informed on these things, who look at people like me being very upset about this and say, well, what's the big deal, right? What's the, just, just let it go, right? It's, it'll pass. It'll blow over. Just like weather patterns, it'll blow over. And if they were right, if those people in the middle who are just saying, oh, no, this this will blow over, it'll come around on its own, don't you worry, just you wait and see. If they were right, uh, I might be a little bit, just, just a touch, just a smidgen embarrassed to have been as concerned about it as I have been. But here's the thing. I think the only reason why some of these sorts of initiatives throughout history uh, fail or fizzle out or reverse course is because there are people like me throughout history who see these kinds of troubles and say, hey, wait a second, that's not correct. That's not true. That's not right. What are you trying to pull? Right. So, so the people in the middle, those always are around as well. You, you have the folks who are just like, ah, yeah, case right. okay, sera, You have the people always, you, you will always find the people who are predatory, who are looking for their opening, looking for their chance. They are wolves, right? The majority of people may consistently be sheep, but you will always have a certain segment who are wolfish. But then if a civilization will endure, it must have a certain proportion of people who are also sheepdogs, who are also going to protect the sheep not protect them so that they can eat them later, <laughs> so that they can eat them after they've chased off the wolves, but protect them from the wolves because we regard it as our job. And I was thinking about this as I was talking with my son, Solomon. One of the many rich conversations that we had, which I think make the whole trip uh, worth it, uh, I think this is probably what I'm actually investing in, not going and seeing these places, the seeing of the places is an excuse, right? It's an excuse for us to go and for us to talk about important things as they are coming into a different phase of life, a, a kind of transitional phase of life between being a child, like they have been to this point, and being a man as they are about to be. In some cultures, they would be men already, but American culture these days does not look at 13-year-olds and expect big things of them. 
American culture actually extends out this stage into something that you might call perpetual adolescence, to where even when a male of the species has gotten well into adult years, their mid to late 20s, their early 30s, we're still not expecting much of them these days. There's a kind of overprotectiveness, but it's also, it's not really protectiveness towards those males. It's a protectiveness towards the things that those males would then be grasping and taking and investing in and building up themselves, which is being protected. It's protecting the resources in some sense, the opportunities in some sense, the authority and influence in some sense, I think, from those young males that we have this idea in our day of perpetual adolescence. I I don't want to have my sons raised with low expectations where perpetual adolescence is the default. We just go with the flow on what the rest of the culture is doing. I don't want that. I don't accept that. I think that's very dangerous, actually. you know, If we're protecting all of the resources, all of the land, all of the job opportunities, all of the positions of authority and influence, if we're protecting those from young men, in particular, in the interest of social justice, in the interest of diversity, equity, inclusivity, environmental, social, governmental uh, scheming and maneuvering, then I think... I think that we are actually guaranteeing that in the future, the bubble is going to burst. And actually, because this has been building for some time, uh, we're already seeing the fruits of that. Well, let's not build the next bubble, right? This one's in the process of bursting, banks collapsing, people pulling just an absurd amount of money out of banks in recent weeks as first Silicon Valley Bank collapsed. There was a classic bank run on it. And thereafter, Credit Suisse in Switzerland also collapsing for very similar reasons. Those bubbles were built and conceived of and being fashioned and being blown (laughs) uh, quite some time ago, right? Years and years and years ago. They've been building for some time. They're bursting right now, and we're going to have the pain of them I think, for some time to come, probably for years, if the cycle uh, is really allowed to correct itself, which it, it probably won't. So it could be actually quite a lot longer. It could be decades, really. And and actually, more to the point, and I don't mean to distress or depress or discourage anybody in saying this. I mean to caution us and to sober us. We need to get sobered up here. That's how bubbles form is when we're not sober and people just throw more and more and more investment into something that is already overinflated because it can only go up, right? It can only go up until it bursts. And then it's like, well, it's it's not going up anymore. Not anytime soon. Not for the foreseeable. The odds are very high based on what we're seeing, based on what we're hearing in the news cycle, in the way that the current economic woes and Recession, if we're lucky, depression, worst case, that is unfolding before our eyes, is being communicated about in the way that it's being talked about, described, and we're just being given a trickle of information because they don't want to let us know 
how bad it is because that'll cause more panic. They want to reassure everybody. Everything's sound. Everything's good. Don't panic. Well, if that were the case, if you really knew that for sure, then presumably you would have been predicting that this was about to happen, what's already happened, but you didn't know or you didn't care or you actually are maneuvering behind the scenes to exploit this. It's, It's one of those options, right? You either didn't know or you didn't care or you're actively manipulating and exploiting this. I think the people who want DEI to be a global thing, they want the Greek reset to be a global thing that brings about a one world government and everybody gets an equal amount of wealth and power moving forward, uh, except for the people who oversee who gets wealth and power. Of course, they always get somehow quite a lot more in the name of the people. Funny how that works. The folks who want to leverage climate change and COVID policy to remake the world in their own image after their likeness, according to their own imaginings. Those people are not going to let this crisis go to waste, and they're probably going to prolong it. There are some goals that are being put out there at the WEF, for instance, World Economic Forum, in the UN, for instance, United Nations. There are some projections and plans and goals that are being put out there that take us well into 2035 and 2050. For instance, for example, there's a British magazine called New Scientist arguing for giant leap. And that's a quote, giant leap, which sounds so much, just so, so very, very, very much like the Great Leap Forward. We're going to call it giant leap. It sounds like the Great Leap Forward. Look it up. This was China under Mao, 100 million Chinese were starved to death by their own government, uh, starved to death and brutalized in the interest of taking China into the 21st century and bringing it to a parity with the most developed nations in the world. New Scientist has a piece titled, Reducing Inequality Could See World Population Fall to 6 Billion. Subtitle write-up says, A projection of how the global population will change by the Club of Rome is far below UN estimates and numbers could drop even faster if we invest more in reducing poverty and inequality, it says. Apparently, if we reduce inequality, James Lindsay tweets, the world's population might drop by 25%. Amazing. This is simply astonishing to see in print. James Lindsay also tweets out, and I quote, they even say it will come about by investing in a quote, giant leap, end quote, Mao's CCP giant leap, great leap, 1958 to 1962, killed around, he says, 55 million people and destroyed the Chinese economy. Some estimates range between 50 and 100 million who died directly due to Mao's policies when he was in charge, when he was the top dog in China. It's a, it's a big, big deal to these people who are looking to remake the world in their own image that you clear out the riffraff. Now, it's a disturbing thought, I know. And I'm not trying to disturb you. I'm not trying to discourage you. I'm not trying to scare you. But I I do want us to be sober about this, that it wasn't that long ago that dictators like Hitler and Stalin and Mao 
we're killing tens of millions of people in an industrialized fashion, in a very efficient scientific way, because that was supposedly the greater good. That was pursuing the greater good. Interestingly, none of those men, none of those mass murderers were motivated by Christianity. In fact, all of them, all of them in the 20th century were hostile to Christianity, hostile to the Christian faith, persecuted Christians every chance they got. The same type of person absolutely exists today. And if you don't think so, my question would be, why? Why, why would you think that that's just a thing of the past? Oh, no, that's, no, no, that'll never happen again. No, absolutely not. We've learned from then. Why? Why would you think that? Why would you say that? You know, I look at the Grand Canyon with my son Solomon. Saturday night, Saturday evening, we were pulling into the park with about an hour until sunset. And then Sunday morning, we needed to get going, get on the road, head back, try and get home. And we got up, went back into the park and snapped some pictures from Grand Canyon Village. And as we were there, I was thinking to myself, isn't it amazing how big this canyon is? And what everybody agrees is this canyon was formed over a long, long time with water. This is erosion. And I would disagree with the length of time that is estimated, asserted. I think we put millions of years on far too many things as just kind of an abracadabra. Oh yeah, it took millions of years. must have taken millions of years. Yeah, you betcha. Yeah, yep, yep, yep. Uh, Scientists don't know that. They don't. And if young earth creationism is correct, and that is what I hold to unapologetically, I won't apologize for it. If young earth creationism is correct, then actually the Grand Canyon could not have been carved over hundreds of millions of years or tens of millions of years. It couldn't have been. It just wouldn't work. The math just doesn't work. You can't fit that many years into as compressed a timeline as we have if young earth creationism is correct, which I hold that it is. But either way, regardless of how quickly or how slowly, to look at the Grand Canyon, to stand there and to look out and see how big a place it is, how deep and how wide the Grand Canyon is, and to realize one way or another, I mean, thousands of years is still a long time. If it took thousands of years, which I believe, it's still a long time. If that's the case, thousands or millions, take your pick, believe what you want to believe. The thought that there's still water in there and it's still doing the same thing that carved the Grand Canyon in the first place, that's a process that is fixed and stable. And what I'm not saying is that everything has always been the same since forever, but what I am saying is there's no new thing under the sun. So the same natural laws, the same laws of physics and chemistry, hydrology, geology, that however fast or slow carved the Grand Canyon are still in effect. Water still does the same thing that it has been doing. It still has the same effect that it does 
the carving of canyons when it flows and washes away soil uh, it still has the same effect as it has since the beginning of recorded history, since the beginning of time. And so also when it comes to the way that people work, the way that people are. If some people are like water and some people are like soil, what kind of soil is this or that person like? And if we find that water is flowing through and we see that there is more and more water that is going to flow through, what we should expect is erosion. And you may not know precisely what path is going to be cut, how deep it is or how wide it is, just glancing at it. But you know that over time, given time, more water is going to carve a deeper canyon. And what we see right now is in terms of a global supply of people who want to control our decisions, control what we produce, what we consume, where we go, the global supply of such people seems to be increasing. It seems to be increasing. Now, you might say, just like with the news cycle, and I've heard lots of people mention this in passing, how do we know when things are actually getting worse over time or when we're just paying closer attention, right? We weren't paying very close attention when we were younger. And as we get older, we're watching the news more. How do we know that the supply is increasing or decreasing or staying the same with regards to people who want to take over the world? And I would say, look at what is ascendant. Look at the kinds of ideas that are communicated and with what force and with what certainty and conviction and energy and the concentrations of wealth devoted to implementing those ideas. Look at what's being communicated. Look at the fundamental premise of what's being communicated and realize that however bad an idea it seems, people can stubbornly cling to bad ideas and be loath to admit when they don't work out, when they fail, even when the results are catastrophic. This is the ominous thing about the greater good being cited so often in the macro. This is the ominous thing about social justice that you can trample on the rights of an individual or even a whole group of people so long as you're able to convince yourself that in the long run, it benefits other people more than it hurts this person or this group of people. It's going to benefit the whole world, <clears throat> for instance, if America is taken down a few pegs, a few notches. If America <clears throat> all of a sudden is less wealthy, less prosperous, less powerful. Well, that might be worth it if on the other end of it, people have convinced themselves that the whole world will be a fairer place, a more peaceful place, a happier place, a more, more, more prosperous place, a more profitable place. If people have convinced themselves that America is the villain in the story and that the rest of the world would be better off if America were not calling shots, making decisions. Well, then however much pain and unpleasantness and discomfort is caused to Americans, you can just shift the attention to all the other people who are happy, right? You're going to make somebody happy. 
And what we shouldn't assume is we shouldn't assume that our leadership in this country in this day is going to be willing to admit that they were wrong when Americans really feel the pain. We shouldn't assume that. Because if their attention is already right now constantly shifting to poor people in developing countries and third world nations, maybe particularly in nations that don't like us very much here in America, historically haven't really liked us that much here in America, then that shift in attention is probably going to remain fairly constant moving forward. I'm being the weatherman here, right? I'm just telling you, it's like, here's the barometric pressure. We see this front moving in, wind speed and air pressure and humidity and solar activity. Like we're probably going to get a storm right here, right? Because storms happen and it looks like there's a storm brewing. And it's not to say it's the end of the world, but it could be, right? That's a possibility. That is a possibility. At a certain point, it would seem as though everybody agrees that the world is going to come to an end. It's just a question of how and how soon. How long is it going to take? And if the Grand Canyon was carved in thousands of years versus millions of years, then so also too, we might suppose that the earth is only going to last thousands of years in its present condition, its present form. And if Genesis is true, well, then Revelation is true as well. And there will be a one world government, which will make war on the church, make war on the saints. Many will be deceived, even the elect, if that were possible. So you you should expect, actually, if these are end times, you should expect that even Christians will be confused about these things and they will be unclear on <clears throat> who the good guys are, who the bad guys are, what's true, what's not true, what's fake news, if you will. I hate that term, but you understand my meaning. What's fake news? What's misinformation, disinformation, malinformation? And what's just being called that so that the powers that be have a license to silence it, to shut it down? You know, one of the things I'm struck by in this trip, many things, but one thing in particular on this topic is how on the way down to the Grand Canyon, we stopped at Mesa Verde National Park southwestern Colorado, not far from the Four Corners at all. And here you've got these cliff dwellings from ancient Puebloan people. Uh, Interestingly, built researchers, archaeologists think around the same time as Chaco Canyon, which Eli and I visited here a year and a half ago or so. But you've got these cliff dwellings that are thought to have been built or construction was begun around 800 AD. So 1,200 years ago. Mind-boggling to think about. 1,200 years these things have been here. Just tucked away in these canyons. But around 1,200 AD, so 800 years ago, these sites were abandoned. People left. Stopped living there. Moved on. Went somewhere else. Now, the museum was closed. If we had been able to go through the museum, we would have been able to uh, maybe see some more. You know, I've already seen some of what was being speculated on at Chaco about factors that might have influenced the Chacoan 
Pueblo people, ancestral Puebloan people, to leave Chaco Canyon, maybe all the same things because it's around the same time period. Maybe it was a major event that happened to all alike. You know, it's thought with regards to Chaco, for instance, that there was an inland sea that came right up to Chaco Canyon and then it receded. And part of the reason for this is because they find fossils of marine life right there in the middle of the desert. And so researchers taking the assumption that the earth is millions and millions and millions of years old, billions of years old, as long as it needs to be in order for us to explain things without God. With their way of looking at it, they say, no, there must have been an inland sea and maybe the Chacoans lived right on the shores, really, of this inland sea. And then the climate changed. And then they had to go somewhere else because their whole way of life depended on living right on the shore here and having access to water, access to fish, various game that were attracted by this supply of water right there on their doorstep. Maybe a similar thing is thought to have happened with the Mesa Verde cliff dwellers. Either way, something happened, right? We, we may speculate about what happened, but something happened because people don't live there anymore. And if people abandoned these places, researchers think, archaeologists think, around 1200, well, then that's before Spaniards anyways. And maybe not before Vikings, right? So maybe a Viking incursion or a Welsh uh, expedition spread some old world diseases before the Spaniards came and brought some old world diseases that Native Americans weren't containing uh, genetic information that would help them to fight off or resist. Now, that's a possibility. Also a possibility is that climate change. And by climate change, what I would say is the world's weather shifted. You know, a major volcanic eruption, for instance, caused global cooling because the whole planet was covered in a bit of ash that changed how much sunlight the planet was able to absorb. We know that that happened around 1080, around the turn of the millennium, the last turn of a millennium before this most recent one. And so maybe that cooling caused major disruption for their way of life. And so then they moved farther south. The point is, the climate changed. We know that the climate changed at some point because Petrified Forest National Park, chock full of all of these fossilized tree stumps, something buried all of these trees in mud quickly to where they were able to be preserved. Now, just passing through, reading signs, just skimming things on our way home briefly, I caught sight and even heard because I pulled up a YouTube video to listen. We were curious where the highest concentration of petrified wood in the world is. And it turns out it's it's probably Petrified Forest National Park, 200,000 acres, and just petrified wood everywhere, just all over the place. But some researchers... Lots of researchers think there was a giant swamp there at one point, and that swamp was full of trees. And then as those trees would fall gradually over a long, long period of time, they would drop down into the mud and get kicked in mud, 
and then rise back to the surface, caked in this mud, and then be fossilized. And I say, that takes a lot more effort to believe than supposing that, oh, I don't know, maybe things happen a lot quicker in the case of a flood, for instance, right? Maybe that's a thing. Maybe there was a massive global flood like we read about in Genesis and like cultures all over the world have myths regarding all over the world, all over the world. And this is not just a distinctly Christian thing, but I think we find the truest accounting of it, the most intact accounting of it, the only really trustworthy accounting of it in Genesis. But cultures all over the world have flood myths, like global flood myths, about the deity rescuing a man and a woman and maybe their family. Details vary to some extent. You know, maybe their kids and their kids' wives or maybe a couple people here and there. The name of the man and his families changed here and there based on what culture we're talking about. But what stays the same is everybody seems to have a memory of some big global flood. And researchers are too clever by half in saying, well, all of them are describing local floods that they just thought were global because that was their whole world. Well, okay, but there's another possibility that the Bible's true. <laughs> that's, that's another possibility here, which if you're just fundamentally opposed to believing that, well, then I got nothing for you. I can't talk you into it. All I can say is, no, I think it is reasonable to hold the position that I do, and here's why. And if you don't like it, you want to insult me for it, abuse me for it, so be it. But it's it's really remarkable to realize that the same people who deride Christians for believing in a young earth, taking Genesis literally, believing that there was a global flood that God did make Adam and Eve individually, you know, six to 10,000 years ago or so, the same folks who deride that also seem to consistently believe in climate change. And they also seem to gravitate towards a deep and abiding anxiety that we're going to make this planet uninhabitable for ourselves and for the animals and for the plants. We're, we're going to wreck it. We're going to destroy it. And part of the reason why we're expecting the worst, we're expecting catastrophe here globally is because uh, something like man's sin is ruining everything. Now, what are our sins? Driving internal combustion engine vehicles, for instance, burning fossil fuels to generate electricity, producing plastics that then sometimes end up in the ocean and then end up creating you know, giant giant islands of trash out in the middle of the ocean, you know, building houses, mining raw materials, logging, drinking water, <laughs> you know, hunting, ranching, farming, all the all these things. Those those are our sins. In other words, exercising dominion. And so it's a, an inversion, right? You know, the the Christian who is a young earth creationist says the earth is young, and then the people who are guilty of scientism and scientific naturalism and they're materialists, they say, no, 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 the earth is not very young. It's very old. And then they mock us. 
And interestingly, the people who say that, oh, no, no, there was never a global flood. That never happened. That's never happened. That's ridiculous. That's absurd. They're also the people who are prophesying doom and gloom because the sea levels are going to rise if the earth gets a little bit warmer. Sea levels are going to rise and flood the coasts all over the world. Explain that to me. It couldn't have happened in the past the way that the Bible tells us, but we're just sure it's going to happen in the near future the way that science tells us. Really? Interesting. Also interesting, the very things that would be regarded for the Christian as obedience, like being fruitful, multiplying, filling the earth and subduing it, going and making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Christ commanded us. Those very things are exactly what the same people who believe that the earth is millions and billions of years old and that a flood couldn't have happened, but it's going to happen globally because of carbon emissions. All of those things, the, the Dominion Mandate and the Great Commission, those are the things that are wrong with the world, according to the same people. According to the Christian, doing what God commanded in the Dominion Mandate and fulfilling the Great Commission, that's how to make the world better. That's being the salt of the earth. That's being a city set on a hill whose light cannot be hidden. That's letting our light so shine before all men. But that's the very thing that the people who inhabit opposite world in a, I would say, very satanic fashion, a very sinful, foolish hearts are darkened fashion. Those are all the very same things that they want to put a stop to because supposedly it's going to be the end of the world if they don't put a stop to them. Now, we would say, if you do put a stop to these things, that's going to be the end of the world. They would say, if we don't put a stop to these things, it's going to be the end of the world. You see you see how that works? These are polar opposite, mutually exclusive, contradictory worldviews. And they really can't be reconciled. They really can't be. Yes, there are certain things that can be said that are true, true observations that can be shared, unpacked, explained by the people who hold the anti-Christian worldview, who hold to that. They can observe phenomena and use words, put words into sentences, into paragraphs, into chapters, into books, or videos, or captions for images, or essays, and articles, and reports. And they can be telling true things here and there, but the real test for whether they're telling the truth and whether they really understand what it is that they're looking at, whether they're really making sense of these things, the real test is whether they are stubbornly leaving out certain details that make the whole thing come together in a way that would please God, in a way that actually accords with reality as God has established reality. The real test for whether they're telling the truth, whether you can believe them, I'm not just saying agree with them on anything. No, that's that's not the way that works. But whether you can believe them, whether you can trust these people is whether they are stubbornly refusing to believe certain things that are necessary to making sense of the whole. And part of the tell is when you do come across articles like this one in The New Scientist, and I quote this 
Earth for All model created to explore which policies would deliver the most good for the majority of people, also suggests that if the world invested in a giant leap to reduce poverty and inequality, the world population would peak at around 8.5 billion people in 2040 and decline to 6 billion by the end of the century. These guys, they're playing the long game. And you should note as well, if they believe that they are going to save the planet and eliminate poverty, eliminate want, eliminate mental illness, immorality, criminality, ignorance, in that long of a span of time, globally, what they have in mind is getting the power in the first place. If they don't feel like they already have it, getting it, consolidating it, and holding on to it for the next 77 years, at least. If they're talking about the end of the century, that's still 77 years away. That's still 77 years ahead of us. The people who are writing this stuff, who are coming up with these computer models, they expect to be the status quo forever forward if the world stands. And they're developing and implementing more and more sophisticated technologies designed to capture, you might say enslave, I would say enslave, but capture our imaginations, capture our decision-making paradigms, capture our assessment of the world around us and our place in it and our relationship with one another. And if they're not capturing all of those things, our economic activity, our social interactions and relationships, our political engagement, if they're not capturing those things, in their view, they risk everything spiraling out of control and the whole world coming to a bad end very soon. Anytime you see predictions about what will happen if we don't enact climate change policies, you will see a almost Old Testament prophet kind of call to repentance. Repent of using fossil fuels, repent of consumption, repent of this, repent of that. But it's all the wrong things that they want us to repent of. Actually, it's all of the things that are obedience to the dominion mandate God gave to all mankind. You don't have to be a Christian to fulfill the dominion mandate, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, or the Great Commission, which you do have to be a Christian in order to fulfill, actually. All of the things that the new scientist types want to do with technology to supposedly save the planet, ironically, are the very things that are going to bring the final judgment. Now, I don't need to be anxious, and this is why you don't need to be anxious either about whether they're going to succeed or whether they're going to be stopped or whether they're going to be reversed here in the U.S. or around the world, because we've read the end of the story. The only thing that we need to really be concerned about, I would say, is are we being found faithful in our generation? Are we blameless in our generation the way that Noah is said to have been? That's really all there is for us, is to be blameless in our generation. But part of how, right, and this is where I get frustrated and admittedly a bit at wit's end sometimes with many of my fellow Christians. It's like if they don't say, ah, just stick your head between your knees and assume the fetal position and rock back and forth because it's all over, right? If they don't do that, then it's like everything's fine. This is fine. They're like the dog in the cartoon. 
with the fire in the background, a vacant look in his eyes with the caption, this is fine, right? The world's on fire. This is fine. And we have to be able to appreciate that there's a danger, like Ralphie and the Simpsons. <laughs> I'm in danger. You know, you, you have to be able to appreciate that we're in danger here. But it might not be as clear cut what kind of a danger and that the danger can be as real and as large scale as it is, but also we don't need to be terrified and we don't need to despair and grow weary of doing what is good. I know it's challenging to believe all of that at the same time, but that's what we have to believe if we're going to guard our hearts here moving forward. We don't want our hearts to grow cold. We don't want to have hearts of stone that are hard. We don't want to be a stiff-necked, stubborn people. But we also don't want to be a naive people who is captivated by vain and human philosophy. And there are a lot of people who are coming up with ever more ingenious, efficient ways to take us captive by vain and human philosophy. You have to know that if you're going to guard yourself and your loved ones from them. You have to know that. If you don't know that, you are going to be taken captive and you're going to be made unproductive at best. At worst, you're going to be deceived, even the elect, if that were possible, we read. And so I think about my son's trip with me, me and Solomon, traveling all over the countryside, seeing these national parks, four of them, great sand dunes. What made the great sand dunes, right? What, what made great sand dunes? Wind, right? That's the official narrative. And that's believable. That's plausible. I'll accept that. Wind, wind blowing sand in a particular way with the air patterns being shaped and molded, directed by the mountains being here and there and this high and open there, but taller there. Sand piled up higher than you could believe if you didn't see it yourself. Over a significant amount of time, I wouldn't say millions of years, but I would say thousands of years, sure. Also, maybe a lot of it deposited by a global flood, perhaps, possibly. Yeah, maybe. You know, a global flood could have started it and then wind has picked up the rest. You know, another interesting thing. Fun fact. I was reading a little post from our neighbor two houses down, Monica Chavez, science post on Facebook this morning, bright and early, about the Great Lakes. Did you know that there's enough water in Lake Superior to submerge all of North and South America in one foot? According to Greg Garratt, G-A-R-R-A-T-T, there's enough water in Lake Superior to submerge all of North and South America in one foot of water. Lake Superior at its greatest depth is 1,333 feet deep. That's amazing. If that can be true, then I reason that maybe our geology changing over time, the great sand dunes are not so fragile. One of the videos that I pulled up for Solomon and I to watch was talking through this landscape, this scenery that we're driving through, and it described it as fragile. 
And then another video I watched with him explaining this national park. Use the same term, fragile. And I see this again and again, this and that, this, that, and the other thing, all fragile. And I just think to myself, is it possible to do damage to a landscape? Yes. Is it possible to make an environment worse because you're being careless? Yes. But I look at the Grand Canyon and I think, this place isn't fragile. (laughs) I'm fragile. I stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon and I think, I am very, very small. I drive up and through Mesa Verde and I see that there were people who lived here a thousand years ago and now all we've got is the structures that they built out of adobe and wood and pottery and various pieces of rope that they left, that landscape is still there. The people aren't. That landscape does not look fragile to me. I realize people, people are fragile. And the climate changing, guess what? It was happening without people burning fossil fuels. When a volcano can go off, And not due to human activity, unless God is judging a people, and then he sets off a volcano to vent his wrath. You know, apart from that, we would say that climate change occurring before the present time was driven by processes which are not dependent on human activity. They drive human activity more than they are caused by or driven by human activity. And yet in our day, what we are seeing is, I think, something very similar to what in ancient times would have been this or that person putting themselves forward with a new religion, saying that this or that deity needs to be appeased, but it's actually, in the Christian theology, not God. When it's God who needs to be appeased, you're right. He does need to be appeased after a fashion. See also Moses in Exodus, appealing to God. If I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please go with us. God needs to be appeased, but these other gods, they don't need to be appeased. No. In fact, what is it that God says to Moses? He says, make sure to warn the people to not make covenants with these people that I'm driving out. Because when they worship their gods, in fact, the wording that's used in the ESV is, When these other nations go whoring after their gods, if you've intermarried with them, then you're also going to go whoring after these other gods. But you're mine. You're not the property of those gods. You're my people. And in our day, we're being tempted with the exact same dynamics. As Christians, we find that people around us are worshiping other gods and we're being pressured to make deals to compromise, to affirm, to blend, to mix in with our theology elements from competing religions, really. Now, insofar as this whole climate change business is not, first and foremost, about fulfilling the the dominion mandate, it's not. By the way, just in case you weren't clear on that, it's not, actually. It's quite opposite. We're being told, well, let's just compromise, right? This is uh, either or, right? You're either fulfilling the dominion mandate or you're not. You're either fulfilling the Great Commission or you're not. 
When they say you cannot talk anymore about this Jesus, we command you, we forbid you. What the Christian's response should not be is, well, how about this? How about, let's make a deal. I'll talk about Jesus half as much as I was. Does that, does that work for you? Let's meet in the middle. No, no, no. And if the authorities, if the powers that be are incensed and offended that you said, no, I must obey God rather than men. So what? Let them be offended. Don't give unnecessary offense to boot and give them some reason to persecute you beyond just obedience to God, but let them be offended if they're going to be offended by your obedience and your faithfulness. If they're offended by you having children, being fruitful and multiplying, filling the earth and subduing it, don't give unnecessary additional offense, but they're going to find reasons to excuse persecuting and oppressing and marginalizing and treating Christians like second-class citizens. And even Christians are going to be conflicted about this and are in real time. Conflicted because, oh, the compassionate thing would be to care about this or that minority group or impoverished people group or what have you. The compassionate thing would be for us to propo- <laughs> for us to propose <clears throat> uh, middle way initiatives so that we're not mocked and derided for being unscientific or stubborn. And yet stubbornness really, where stubbornness comes in, first and foremost, is in relation to what God's commanded, not in relation to what people are demanding of us. The whole business about God saying that this is a stiff-necked people and Moses agreeing, yeah, you're right, this is a stiff-necked people. Please have mercy on us. Forgive us. We are a stiff-necked people. You're right. You're right. We are. And we need to work on that and stop being stiff-necked. What God is not saying is don't stick to your guns when you are being faithful and obedient or else we would find fault with Joshua and Caleb when they stick to their guns on the good report after spying out the land of Canaan. But that's not them being stiff-necked. That's not them being stubborn. That's them being faithful and resolute and steadfast, which we are called to. So there's a good version of this, which we should emulate and we should seek to embody and be characterized by. There's a bad version of this, which has to do with double-mindedness and refusing to obey God, refusing to trust God. One of the things that I'm struck by in seeing so much of the mountains and the deserts and the mesas and the canyons and even remnants fossilized of ancient forests, which I would suspect is evidence of the great flood written about in Genesis, the one that God saved Noah and his family from, our ancestors from, all our ancestors. The thing that I'm struck by is Here's all of this creation. Some of it is scary to me. I'm afraid of heights. So standing on the edge of the great chasm that is the Grand Canyon, I am afraid. (laughs) I am sobered. Driving through a mountain pass in a snowstorm, I am afraid. I am petrified. (laughs) But then I have to reframe all of that and think, God is made this. God is greater than this. He is mightier than this. He is stronger than this. He is sovereign over this creation. Do I trust God? Am I abiding in him? Am I content with what he has allotted to me? 
Am I being a good steward of what he's allotted to me? Not burying it in a field and saying, ah, it'll be better. It'll be better this way if I just bury it in a field because mother nature will be upset otherwise. No, 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 no. I don't work for mother nature. I work for father God. And then I use whatever part of his creation he has blessed me with, hopefully in a way that pleases him, honors him, brings glory to him, loves my family, my friends, my neighbors, my community, the city to which I've been brought, again, to honor him, to glorify him, to obey him, and for a blessing. Lots more to say, but I got to run. That's all the time I've got for this episode. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.